Thanks for listening to the Grace First podcast. If you want to know more about us, head on over to gracefirst.church. Or if you're in the Wichita area, come visit us Sundays at 1015. Well, when we were living in Northern Virginia, we had the privilege last year to hike the Great Falls. Uh, This is one of the national parks. And when we pulled into the gate, we were met with a pleasant surprise. It said all active military and veterans uh, receive a free park pass. But our free park pass came with a press interview from my three little ones in the back seat. And my press briefing sounded something like this. Why was it free, Daddy? I said, well, because Daddy served in the Army. Next question. But wasn't it free to join the Army? Well, it is free, but they call it a service for a reason because there is a lot of pain and hardship involved. Next question. Well, was the food free in the army? I said, well, nothing is free in life. Everything in the military was paid for by taxpayers like you and I, and including the food, we pay for that. Then she said, oh, well, at least the roads are free and the library is free. And like a good dad, I answered, please refer to the previous answer, And notice that nothing in life is free. The roads, the local library, they're all furnished by taxpayer funds. And this was a great opportunity to teach them that nothing in life is free. The roads, the food, the houses, the very freedom that we enjoy here in America, everything has a price, including the gift of grace from our Lord. The grace of our Lord is given to us as a free gift but it came at a great price. And what is required of those who receive this gift also comes at a cost. Grace is not cheap, nor should we treat it this way as recipients of this great gift. Too often these days, God's gift of grace is presented to us as cheap grace, where the price paid is not given much attention, nor the demands that are required of the recipient's Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in this book, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, this. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Perhaps this morning, You're getting ready to leave your home after you have graduated, and you're figuring out how to live your life as you're looking for a purpose. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home, and you have not committed your life to Jesus through baptism, and are wondering how others would view you and treat you in this world as a Christian at school and at work. Or maybe you have heard the gospel through a sermon or through a friend that shared the gospel with you, and are considering, do I really want to commit to be a Christian? All of this makes sense, but it's going to require all of me. And so, well, if you've wondered, what will it cost for me to follow Jesus? This morning, I want to show you the truth of the cost of discipleship. So we continue in our series in the Gospel of Mark. Last last week, we saw this sandwich narrative of Jairus and his daughter, And this was interrupted by the meat of the story, which was the story of the the bleeding woman. 
And we saw that the kind of faith that Jairus needed was demonstrated by this woman's faith. And Jairus trusted in Jesus to to raise his daughter from the dead, and Jesus did it. Well, this morning we see another sandwich narrative, and it's the story of Jesus sending the 12 out on mission, and that story is sandwiched by the story of John the Baptist's death. And the story will answer the question for us, for all followers of Christ, what is the cost of following Jesus as we are sent out on mission by Jesus? So if you're not there with me, turn with me to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. You can flip your phone onto Mark 6, or there are pew Bibles in front of you if you like to follow along. And this is going to be in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Here we see in verses 12 and 13 that the 12 are sent out to conduct the kingdom mission. And this is the same work that Jesus has been doing since Mark chapter 1. It is of driving the demons, healing the sick, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Their instructions are very clear in verses 8 through through 11. And what you'll find, if you're going to do a study on this, what you'll find that is in the the Gospel of Matthew and Luke uh, have these same accounts. In Luke 9 and Matthew 10, and if you compare their lists, they have their slight variations in each account. Some critics will point to this and say, well, the Bible is contradictory. How can you believe the Bible? It has three different accounts, and they all have different descriptions and emphasis. But they're not contradictory. The authors are communicating the story of different audience, which require different emphasis. Last year on Memorial Day, uh, I and some of the the families from our small group went to watch the Marine Corps uh, band play at an outdoor venue. And there at the venue, I was talking to a good friend who was still serving on active duty about our deployment experiences overseas. And there was another friend who was a civilian who had overheard our conversation. And later that evening, my civilian friend told me that when he heard our conversation, that it sounded like we were talking in code because there are acronyms and words that are used that are really foreign to many people. But if I told those same stories to a group of civilians or children, I would use totally different words, and it would sound very different. It would be the same story, but it wouldn't be uh, told in same, using the same words that I would to a group of veterans. Well, that's kind of what we see here in these variations between the authors and this very account. Different audience require different descriptions. So what is Mark trying to convey to his audience through Jesus' instructions here? Well, here's the first point in your outline if you're following along. What Jesus requires of his kingdom workers is that we cultivate a simple lifestyle. 
We must cultivate a a mission-ready lifestyle, if you will. And this is a great challenge for us as those who are living in the West. Notice in his instructions that they are to travel light. They are to be committed to the mission at hand and not be bogged down by, by any material possessions. Now hear me well here, church. Jesus is not condemning wealth. He's not condemning wealth because God blesses his people with wealth according to his plans. And God uses our blessings to fulfill a purpose in his kingdom, especially through the hospitality of those who are called to be wealthy and those who give generously to the cause of the gospel. And we see wealth. We see a lot of wealth throughout the Bible in people like Abraham and in Job. There's great wealth that are given. But our material possessions can very easily become an idol, as it can provide a false sense of security. And even in the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, he writes this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus isn't calling all his disciples to take a vow of poverty. No, that's not what he's calling But the principle here is this. Followers of Jesus cannot be hindered by material possessions. And we must be committed to his mission at all costs. If our worldly possessions keep us from saying yes to Jesus, then we must say no to all that gets in our way between us and Jesus. As disciples of Christ, We must cultivate a simple lifestyle that empowers us to obey him when he calls us to go. And when we seek him and obey him, he will be the one who will provide all things necessary for our journey. Jesus' instruction in verses 8 through 11 reflect the total dependence on God's provision through the hospitality of his people. And this is the second point in your outline, that we must depend on God for his provision. We must depend on God. When we commit to following Christ, we must be completely dependent on his provision. Matthew 6.33 tells us, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. See, what is amazing about that verse and that promise that God gives his children is that God of the universe, he irrevocably commits himself to providing for his children, and sees to it that we are cared for when we follow him. The all these things that Jesus was talking about were the things that we worry about in life and the very things that we pursue in life, including our future spouse for those who are single, our children's education, our retirement, our future house, and importantly, how we're going to pay for all of these things. Do you worry about these things? Jesus said to trust in his provision. See, when you're about his mission, then he is going to be about your mission. He will provide all things necessary. And when you seek him first and make his work the highest priority in life, he will guide you and he will provide for you. When God guides, God provides. Seek first his kingdom. And rely on his provision, and he will see to it that you will be cared for. Now we see a transition in our text from Jesus sending the disciples 
to John, John the Baptist's passion narrative. The word passion in the Old English meant uh, suffering and hardship, suffering uh, and pain. And so whenever you hear that, the passion of Christ or passion of John the Baptist, it's a reference to usually their last moments uh, leading to their death. So here we have in Mark 6, the passion of John the Baptist. What's interesting about this uh, in Mark's gospel is that there are only two passages in the gospel of Mark that are not about Jesus. And those two passages are about John the Baptist. Now, who was John the Baptist? Well, John, he announces Jesus' ministry, and here John's about to die. And in both passages, John foreshadows Jesus. There are quite a few things that we know about John the Baptist. His birth announced the coming of Jesus. His life was dedicated to being a herald of proclaiming Jesus. And John's death served as a precursor to Jesus' death. Both John and Jesus were innocent, arrested, executed by civil rulers who were hesitant, and buried by their followers. So here we have a man whose purpose in life was to show Christ through his birth and through his death. And this is the meat of the sandwich narrative that we see today. John's life and death is highlighted for us to show us what you and I can expect as Christians, as followers of Christ who are sent out on mission for Jesus. Our priorities in life must also reflect John's priorities. That is, we must show Christ even through our suffering and even to our death. So here's John the Baptist's life and death, and it highlights the true cost of discipleship when we follow Jesus. So join me in Mark chapter 6. And let's look at the cost of discipleship. This is a very heavy passage, so follow along with me in verse 14 through 20. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had bound and put him in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Here in verse 17, it sets the stage for the rest of the story. We have all the players present here. We have King Herod. At least four rulers in the New Testament are named Herod. And if you ever studied the, or followed or watched documentaries on Herod, their whole family is pretty messed up. There's a lot of incest and a lot of adultery going on. This is Herod and Antipas, second of the four Herods. His father was Herod the Great. Uh, the, the, and that's the father, that, the Herod that we see in the Christmas narratives. Then we have Herod's brother Philip's wife, Herodias. 
Now, in order for Herod to marry his brother's wife, he had to first ditch his wife unlawfully, and Herodias had to ditch her husband, Philip. As you can see, there's a a lot of infidelity and sexual immorality taking place in these relationships. But John the Baptist's role was to witness to the truth. As a witness to Christ, he shined the light of Christ on the darkness of Herod's sin. He stood for the truth, as we see in verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Here's a third point in your outline on what being a disciple of Christ entails. And that is, you must stand for the truth. You must stand for the gospel truth. It is in our human nature to be liked by people, isn't it? But when you stand for the truth, the world will not agree with you. And they may even hate you. And this is what we see in John's life. You see, the Old Testament law prohibited a man from marrying his wife or his brother's wife, except only after the brother's death, which was not in this case. Leviticus 18.16 tells us, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. And what made this even worse was Herodias was Herod's niece, which made this adulterous and incestuous. What John the Baptist did here was stand for the truth. This was a heinous sin before God, and so John shed a light on their dark and sexually immoral affair because this is what God calls his people to do, to be a light of his truth in this dark and distorted world of sin. When you proclaim that human life is created in the image of God and that we have in our God's image inherent dignity and value from birth, from, from the womb to all those who are knocking on the tomb, the world may consider you a bigot. When you claim that God only created two genders in a culture where even our political leaders are propagating the lies that there are many acceptable genders today, you will be labeled. And when you claim that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, as you share Christ's message of repentance and forgiveness of sin and the wrath of God against sin, they will silence you to be a disciple of Christ. You must stand for the truth, even if the world hates you for it. Several years ago, I was visited by a stranger And he came into my office and wanted to talk to a pastor. And so he began sharing his story with me. He was a married man with children who had developed an uh, uh, adulterous affair in South America. He began courting this mistress during his travels and started living this double-faced life. As I listened to this man, I didn't really know what he wanted from me. But I sensed what he was looking for was my affirmation to justify his sins. He, wanted, he likely wanted me to advise him, as the world would advise, you know, do what you want to do. Do what feels right in your life. As they would say, to each their own. Our culture today would have you believe that the loving thing to do is to just accept them and, and let them be who they are, to let them do what they want. But this is not how Jesus calls his people to live. After I heard the story and confirmed the sins that he was committing, the loving thing to do 
was to share the truth of the gospel. And what was best for him was to tell him to stop what he's doing and to receive forgiveness from Christ. My counsel to him was simple. It says, your affair is hurting everyone involved. Your affair is hurting your wife, your children, and your mistress's uh, life and her children as well. You need to turn from your sins. You need to ask for forgiveness from your mistress, from God, from your family, and start living this life again. You need to do what is best for you by turning from this and receiving forgiveness from God. And if you're ready to do that and seek forgiveness, I will walk with you through the process. Sadly, I never heard back from him again. He was thankful for the counsel, and I don't know what happened to him. But you too will run into similar situations. It may be your boss, a family member, your own child, a close friend. And they may come to you because you bear the truth of God as a Christian. And they may share with you about their sins and their struggles, whether it's an adulterous affair, a premarital sex, a gender confusion, or a life of addiction. And what you say to them could affect your relationship. It may even cost you your relationship or your job or even cause, cause tension in that relationship. But it may save their life. And most importantly, it may save their soul. So what do you say to them? As John the Baptist shined the light on the sin of Herodias, you too must speak the truth with grace and wisdom. In a culture where you do you or do what you feel is right is a mantra, you must love them enough to stand for the truth as a disciple of Christ and proclaim the gospel with courage. Be as shrewd as a serpent and as innocent as a dove in your counsel. But be aware, when you stand for the truth, some will hate you. They may defriend you, they may never talk to you again, and they may even report you to the authorities. Herod's immediate response to John the Baptist was imprisonment. We read in verse 17 that Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. Whether John liked it or not, he was making enemies for the gospel. And here's our fourth point in your outline of what it takes to be a disciple. And that is be prepared to make enemies of the gospel. Be prepared to make enemies. John the Baptist was completely innocent, but he made enemies because of what he stood for. Herod Antipas, who did not take John's rebuke well, responded by arresting him and putting him in jail. And Herodias, who really didn't take his counsel well, she schemed to kill him and successfully executed her plan. Church, expect the world to hate you and be prepared to make enemies of the gospel. Even though you may not necessarily be flogged or arrested, you may experience a loss of employment social isolation, and other forms of persecution. If the Lord calls you to serve as a missionary or a church planter in dangerous countries out there, then even today, you may face jail time, heavy persecution, and even death for pro proclaiming Christ. 
But listen to the words of Bonhoeffer on persecution. Suffering is a badge of true discipleship. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In the hour of the cruelest torture they bear for his sake, they are made partakers in the perfect joy and bliss of fellowship with him. To bear the cross proves to be the only way of triumphing over suffering. Based on the testimony of one of the British officers who was a fellow prisoner of the last service with with Bonhoeffer uh, that he held just before his death, all those in prison were deeply moved. Bonhoeffer was then taken away, hanged, and died as a martyr. And he died with dignity for Jesus. Jesus said, be on your guard. The world will hate you. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. If you are a professing believer, then you are not of this world And you serve an audience of one, the one true living God, Jesus the Christ. If you are shining the light of the gospel in the darkness around you, just like John the Baptist, you will make enemies. You will face persecution of varying degrees. There will be times when you will feel tempted to take the path of least resistance by being more agreeable to those around you on issues that are disagreeable to God. But rather than seeking the approval of man, I charge you to seek the audience of one. Seek the approval of God alone by standing for the truth. In 2010, a pastor in India by the name of Pastor Peter, who ministered in predominantly Muslim slum, founded an after-school tutoring program to help kids academically, but also as an outreach to share Christ. He handed out copies of Jesus' film discs and also the New Testament to about 20 of his students. But when the Muslim community found out, they gathered the mob of about 150 angry Muslims and went to Pastor Peter's home. He was dragged outside, slapped, kicked, and beaten as they chanted, Kill the infidel. His wife tried to negotiate with the mob, but to no avail. The mob ransacked and destroyed all his possessions. When the police came, instead of arresting the mob that had beaten the man and destroyed all his possessions, they arrested Peter for disturbing communal harmony. He and his wife and their two children lost all their earthly possessions in this world. When he was asked about his experience of his persecution in India as a Christian, this was his response. Persecution is not an accident It is the expectation. Persecution is not an accident. It is the expectation. The expectation is the same for us today here in America. Listen to the sobering words of Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are a disciple of Christ who wants to live a godly life in Christ, scriptures clearly say that you will be persecuted. 
Persecution will come in different forms, but we must expect it and not fear. We see the worst form of persecution in John the Baptist's life. Join me in verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once, the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed because of his oath and his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So this is the final point in your outline, and that is the ultimate cost of following Jesus. We must be willing to suffer for Christ even to death. We must be willing to suffer for Christ. John the Baptist was a man who proclaimed the truth, which led to his arrest and eventually to his death. Do you want to know what it entails to be a Christian? Do you want to know what is required of you to follow Jesus? Here is the requirement from Jesus' mouth to our ears. Matthew 10.38 tells us, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is the cost of following Jesus. You must be willing to suffer for Christ even to your death. Before you commit your life to Jesus and say, I will follow you, count your cost. Being a Christian may cost you your life. Anticipate and expect persecution and even death from it. The question you must ask yourself is, 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 is following Christ worth the hardship of my life? And I want to encourage you with these rewards. Look at the result of the mission of the 12 in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he, Jesus, said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. As they served Jesus, though they were exhausted and, and hardship was to be expected, guess where they ended up? They ended up in the presence of Jesus. And that's just a glimpse of the rest that we will find in Jesus when we serve him. When we finish our mission in life, we will find ourselves in the eternal rest with Jesus. If Jesus is your all in all, and following and obeying him is your number one priority in life, then the cost of persecution in the present reality is nothing compared to the eternal rest that we will have with him. 
When you commit your life to following him, you're investing in your eternal future. And he will say to you in the end, come with me and I will give you eternal rest. 10,000 years from now, you will look back on your life here on earth and it will have just been a dust in the wind, a blip on the map that appeared for just a little while and disappeared. He is your great reward. And he, you will receive in Jesus your eternal treasures in heaven. So how will you answer the question? Is the commitment to suffering and hardship of carrying the cross worth it to follow Jesus? See, the one who calls you to carry the cross and follow him is the one who knows what it means to carry the cross. And he went onto that forsaken hill because he himself carried and hung on that cross. Lonely, twisted, and tortured, he bore the price of our sin through his thorn-pierced brow, the nail-pierced hands and feet, lacerated back, and he felt the streams of blood as he suffocated by the weight of his tortured body. You see, we have a God who knows what it means to suffer. And one who conquered sin and death through his death and resurrection. And one who can say that I have overcome the world. He is not a God who is just sitting on a beach chair and, and watching the world suffer and removed from the world of suffering. But he is God who has entered into our world of suffering and who calls his redeemed children to pick up your cross and follow me. But do you want to be a Christian? Are you ready to pick up your cross and follow Jesus? If you have already made that commitment to Christ and call yourself a Christian, then I want to encourage you with the words of Apostle Paul who said this, to live is, to live is Christ and to die is gain. There is no greater purpose in this world than to live and die for Jesus Christ. But this morning, if you have not made that commitment to follow Jesus, then I want to make it clear to you to count your cost of following him. Following Jesus is not about saying a prayer one time and going your own way, but it's about giving your life fully to the cause of the king. Men, let me speak to you for a moment. To those of you who are young boys, to those who are uh, getting gray hair like myself, to those who have no hair, let me speak to you. Being a manly man, it doesn't mean that you have to have the body of a CrossFit champion. It doesn't even mean that you have to know how to survive in the wilderness for X amount of days or know how to operate weaponry, or complete a certain rite of passage. These can be helpful things that help us grow in our character to be men. And it doesn't make you any less of a man if you're not into these things. None of these qualities define what it means to be a man. But there is one trait to manhood that the Bible outlines for us very clearly. And not many will choose this path. And not many will have the courage to walk down the road. But I want you to be the man of God that he has called you to be. What it means to be a real man is to live for a purpose and die with conviction. 
It is to live for a purpose and die with conviction. To be a man of God means to live boldly for the purpose of serving Christ and to die with the conviction that your life was fulfilled with the gospel mission that he gave you. Even through the most gruesome torture, you proclaimed Christ to fulfill your mission to your death. See, more than ever before in the history of our our world, the world needs strong, godly men, men with a purpose and men with conviction. There's a reason why terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Taliban have no problem recruiting young men. It is because they offer a purpose to live for and a cause to die for. And though these are founded on lies, they are very successful. Men crave mission and purpose, and sadly, too many young men today find these in the wrong places. Too many of them are looking for purpose in life, but they look to video games and spectator sports because these forms of entertainment offer us some sense of mission and purpose and adventure through vicarious means. But the greatest purpose that you can truly live for and die for is the kingdom purpose. There are missionaries today who live like Jason Bourne, working to sneak in Bibles into countries like North Korea, China, and Iran as they run from their enemies of the gospel. And when they are caught, they are tortured, hung, and they die. There are doctors and pastors, people just like you and me, who expect hardship and who risk their lives to proclaim the gospel through medical missions and VBS missions in places like Juarez, Mexico, Pakistan, and Haiti. For you to stand on the gospel and live for the purpose of serving Christ will require you to be courageous beyond what you can handle, and it may even cost you your life. Gospel work is dangerous work, and you must count your cost. But there is no greater purpose than this, and he is calling you, O man of God. So will you accept? Will you give yourself fully to the purpose to which God is calling you? When you answer the call, he will give you the courage and he will guide you in an adventure that you were made for. And one simple way to be equipped for that training is coming to our men's group on Thursday nights. We will equip you. We will teach you how to share the gospel. You will get practices And you'll learn how to combat the lies of the culture and proclaim the gospel boldly. Be men of God. Live for the purpose of Christ and die with the conviction of the gospel. As disciples of Christ, we are all called to cultivate a simple lifestyle, depend on God's provision, and stand for the truth. And when we do, expect enemies of the gospel and be prepared to suffer even to death. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, there are no cross-wearers in heaven above that were not cross-bearers here below. Gospel work is dangerous work. Nothing in life is free. So count your cost. Let's pray.